Yes. Mm-hmm. It's all good. It's all good. Helping people get checked in. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. We got it. Not a problem. I'm, I'm flexible. I'm flexible. Very much. So hopefully you guys are all the same way. If you did not get one of those Luke journals, please, please do. Uh, we only had just a couple left last week, and so uh, we, we got some more in. Uh, we want to make sure that we have those for people. Since we're going to be in this study for a good, good long time, we wanted to make sure that we uh, um, have those available for people as time goes on. We want to make sure that, that you can... Right along uh, with us. And so here for a little bit, we're going to go in consecutive order, but then in, in, in short order, we'll be flipping that up and, and uh, begin the process of, of skipping around a little bit. Although really we're not. We'll just be doing all of uh, the miracles of Jesus in order out of the book of Luke and then all of the teachings of Jesus in order out of Luke for the most part. So, so that's what that will look like. Uh, welcome back indeed. It is exciting. And, and the reason I ask that at the beginning is as Americans especially. We, we really don't get excited about much because we have access to everything all the time. Um, there are very few things that the majority of people in our country really get excited about because we take everything for granted. We just do. And so whether you're in person here with us or you're joining us online, have you ever thought about how great it is that we can study about our Jesus together? Have you really ever considered that, how great it is that we can use a teaching like this. We can use the gospel of Luke to help us grow in our personal relationship with Jesus. Have you thought about how great it is that God can use this to prepare you, to help better prepare you to reach out to this unbelieving world, those that have questions, even those that have have had a bad experience with religious people or maybe even a church somewhere? It is this incredible opportunity that we have now to invite others into this investigation. And you and I don't necessarily, well, I guess I do, but you don't have to be the one to lead it. (laughs) You can let someone else lead it for you, and then you can just be along the ride with those people. And so I want to ask you to continue to pray for all of those pre-believers, those pre-believers, that the Spirit will move them into the relationship that they were created for, their relationship with Jesus. And, and can you continue to pray that we as believers, those of us that have accepted Christ, will continue to grow in a, a deeper understanding and a stronger relationship of Jesus. When, when you do studies like this, it really gives you a chance, because there's no way I could possibly cover every detail or every nuance or every possibility of study within the text. There's just no way it would ever, could ever happen. And so it leaves you, hey, we didn't talk about this part of the text. Right. You noticed. Good. Now go and learn and pick that part, uh, pick that apart for for you. There's something that I said many, many sermon series ago, but it's going to keep repeating itself as as we meet together. Remember this very true statement. You and I will never, ever, ever, ever become who Jesus wants us to be by remaining who we are. Whoever you are today is not who Jesus wants you to be tomorrow, if you didn't know that. And so if you kind of feel like your life is in a rut and you're kind of just always the same, there's a reason for that. There's a very explicit reason for that. So last week, last week we left off with Luke asking this question. Why did Luke include this stuff? 
Why did he think that the backstory of John the Baptist and the backstory of Jesus before they were born, why did he think that was important? Because he could have easily skipped it and just went right ahead to, to Jesus being Jesus, if you will, or at least maybe just the birth story of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. He could have done that, but he didn't. Instead, he wanted to include as many details, as many parts of the story, things not included in other places at all. One of the things that we're going to continue to discuss throughout this book is Luke's attention to detail. It's so important. I mentioned it specifically last week when he was talking about the angel, Gabriel, that met with Zechariah in the temple. And he went so far as to say the angel stood on the right side of the altar. That's, that's, you might not think that's a big deal. That is so precise. Like there's a mental image now you can form of where that angel was standing before Zechariah as he came in to offer that burnt incense to the Lord. For the skeptics, or those that have a hard time believing the accounts of Jesus to be true, we want you to take this idea, these details, into consideration. You see, because when people make things up, they are usually as vague as they possibly can be. Why? Well, so that way when you hear it, well, there's some truth at least to whatever they're saying, right? There's always a little bit of truth. Have you ever watched the news? (laughs) There's a little bit of truth in there. Absolutely there is, and enough to make you think it is or is it, and confuse you ultimately. So the more precise you are, the more truth that there is, the more vague, well, you know. The other option is the exact opposite. The other option is if if you're not going to tell the truth, you're going to make things up, then you're going to embellish the story to no end. You're going to make your people look so good. The hero of your story is going to be so much more heroic than possible. You're going to hide their weaknesses. You're going to hide their flaws. You're going to make them seem more powerful. Maybe as if they're not even human at all. As you'll see, not just in Luke, but in all of Scripture, the Bible's authors kind of go to a great length. First of all, to be as accurate as they could be for the times in which they lived. But they definitely don't hide. And sometimes they actually accentuate the weaknesses and the flaws and the humanness of those heroes of the story. Take Jesus, for example. If Jesus was God, then why would he cry? Why would he ever allow others to hurt him? That wouldn't be very godlike, now would it? Unless there was another motive, of course. Luke shares this entire backstory for both John the Baptist and Jesus. And last week we found out that Elizabeth and Mary were both expecting babies. And so this week, here come the babies, right? Here come the babies. He shares nearly all of these events that surround their birth. Now, Matthew shares a few others about Mary and Joseph. But for the most part, Luke gets about everything in there from the, from the parent reactions to where we'll end today, these divine priestly encounters. And I'm so excited to get to the end today. I had to throw them in. Now, I will warn you, today is very, 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 very text heavy. Okay? Very text heavy. So you'll want to follow along in your John journal or the Bible under the seat in front of you or your phone, your app, wherever you read from. Okay? But a lot, a lot of text today. That won't always be the case, but it sure is today. Elizabeth is now six months along. Mary has just found out that her relative, Elizabeth, is pregnant. So listen to this account. We're in John, or Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. 
where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why? Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears? The baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed the Lord and will fulfill his promises to her. Now, if you're familiar with the story or you were with us last week, then you know that Gabriel's news to Mary, he mentioned, by the way, your relative is expecting, your relative Elizabeth, even in her old age, is expecting. So what does Mary do? Well, it seems as if almost immediately after her encounter with Gabriel, she runs off to go and visit Elizabeth. Now, for those of you that think that's odd, no, it actually would be quite normal for a Jewish family. If you found out a family member was expecting and you were a young lady, especially, you might go to help with that pregnancy, especially if she was already in her sixth month. The baby would be coming soon. She's going to need help around the home. Absolutely, she would, especially with her age. But there's a key piece of information that's missing here. It says, as soon as Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. John was already rejoicing in the presence of of his Savior. But have you ever wondered, how did Elizabeth know? Now, we've all watched the films, and we know, well, Mary wrote a letter and sent it to Elizabeth. There's so many flaws with that possibility. One, Mary probably couldn't read or write. (laughs) I'll start with that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's reality of the world they lived in. How would the letter have gotten? It says that she hurried off. She didn't say she stopped took her time, wrote a letter, checked in on things, and then went. It appears as if Mary just wraps it up and takes off to go see Elizabeth. In other words, Elizabeth doesn't know until Mary shows up. Have you ever thought about that? Because it's not presented that way in any story. We're not told if she knows in advance or not. I am starting to believe that maybe she didn't. Because it says in that moment she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Was this a divine revelation? God just, re- just gave this information to Elizabeth from her child within her. Because if you remember Gabriel's instructions to Zechariah, he said, And your son will be full of the Holy Spirit before he's even born. Oh, yeah. <laughs> John got all crazy excited in the womb and told mom, hey, mom, guess who's over there? (laughs) Literally, that's what happened. It's another miracle in this whole story, if you've never thought about it. This might just be the very first person, because we don't know exactly when Gabriel went to Joseph, do we? This might be the very first person on planet Earth that knows that Mary's expecting. It would be fitting. It would make sense. And the Spirit leads Elizabeth to call her blessed. It's an incredible scene. I want to take a moment now and compare two of the next three texts. We're going to do a text, skip a little, do another text. Mary's song, which is recorded in the next few verses, and then Zechariah's song, which follows, because they somewhat mirror one another. Now, Mary appears this as she composes her song right after her encounter with Elizabeth, somewhere in there, while Zechariah waits until after his son John is born. And so when you hear these songs, these prayers, these praises to God, think about why 
love the question why Luke might be recording these. How do these words that he records help the Gentiles, as well as you and I, be more certain of our faith? What is it that's of value in these words? How do they relate to the absolute truth of who Jesus is? So we'll pick up in verse 46. This is Mary. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And then verse 56, a throwaway line, I think not. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. You know what you've probably never read into that verse before? How far along was Elizabeth when she came? Hmm. How long did she stay? That equals? Guess what Mary was there for? Yeah. Just process it. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Help deliver John the Baptist. Think about it. Think of the significance and what that means. See, we just, we just throw those little things away because it's not important. Ah, but is it? I think it is. Zechariah. Zechariah says it's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he, his, his song, if you will, is more of a prophetic song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. This is a priest speaking, remember. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, as he had said through his holy prophets long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hands of our enemies, to enable us to serve him with fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of their tender mercy, <clears throat> because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And it says, the child grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until it appeared publicly in Israel. Now, both of these songs begin the same way. They both start with praise and adoration for their Lord and Savior. Both understand that these two miracle children will somehow provide salvation for Israel. That's an incredible thought. Both of these children are fulfillment to prophecies spoken long long ago. And here's why Luke includes this. This is an attempt by Luke to share Jewish history, Jewish prophecies that relate to both John and Jesus with the Gentiles, a people group that knew nothing about Jewish heritage, nothing about Jewish faith or prophecies, unless they're one of the few Greeks who were raised as Jews. 
A new generation of believers that could use some more proof as to who exactly Jesus was and how he fit all of these categories or maybe checked all these boxes in our culture, if you will. To point back to those ancient passages and connect both John and Jesus to the fulfillment of God's word would have been an amazing thing to come to life before the eyes of those that would have been reading this original text. Mary speaks to the power of God at work in the world, while Zacharias speaks of what is to come through John's preparation of the way for Jesus. Mary shares about the work that Christ will do as he exalts the humble, as he scatters the proud, as he brings down rulers, fills the hungry, and sends the rich away empty. Now, Again, think of Luke's purpose. He puts this narrative together. He puts this prophecy at the beginning. And then what does Luke go on to record? Well, Luke records those exact events. Think about the recordings. If you know the story of Luke, if you don't, we'll be covering it. He absolutely records those life events as Jesus does those things throughout his ministry. And so as someone that's wanting certainty, they see the prophetic words of Jesus' mother, and then they literally see those words come true through the life of Jesus as he records them in his work. That would go a long way to convincing you. (laughs) Remember Luke's goal, to help us be certain of our faith. But before we get to that most famous passage today, we have a little bit of business to wrap up with John here before he's reintroduced in a couple chapters. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And it says, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But Elizabeth spoke up and said, no, 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 no. He's to be called John. To which everyone looked at her like, are you crazy? Are you just trying to pull one over on your husband? Like, you're going to change the name? It's supposed to be after him. What are you doing? That's not very wise. There's nobody in your family that has that name, John. What's that? So they made signs to his father, to Zechariah, because he still could not speak. And they asked him. And he asked for a tablet. And to everyone's astonishment, he wrote those famous words. His name is John. And it was that moment that his mouth was finally opened nine plus months later. And his tongue was free, and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors, filled with all throughout all the hill country of Judea, were talking about all of these things. It was spreading like wildfire. Everyone in the herd was wondering about it and asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. Now, I, being a father, still cannot imagine what it would have been like for Zechariah to spend those nine months in silence. He could not share his excitement as a first-time father. You've, some of you have experienced it. You've witnessed it maybe in your own children. That first time they become a husband or become a father or a mother at a young age and how excited they were. Could you imagine? Fast forward to however old Zachariah is, 70, 80, whatever he is. Imagine his excitement at that phase of life for something like this. And he can't speak. He couldn't comfort his wife. As she struggled through her pregnancies, ladies, I don't have to explain to you what that might be like as a 70, maybe older, year old lady having a child. Mm-hmm. He couldn't talk to her. He couldn't comfort her until day eight. <laughs> until day eight when it came time for his miracle child and he broke all the cultural and family traditions and he didn't use that family name. Instead, he followed through on Gabriel's Word to him and his promise back to Gabe. Yep, we'll call him John. 
John, which means the Lord has been gracious. How gracious indeed he had been to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now to the nation of Israel with the coming of this prophet. Luke records that immediately Zechariah regained his speech and the first thing he did was praise God. Now there's so many things to unpack from this simple passage, but from Luke's purpose, he's showing a couple of things very specifically. One, God's faithfulness to Zechariah and fulfilling his promise. And in turn, Zechariah's faithfulness to God. As God delivers on that promise, Zechariah follows through with the thing he was supposed to do, and that was to name his son John. That was a huge, huge deal in that era, and he did. He gave thanks for what God alone had provided. What an example to share with the Gentile world Luke was writing to, but also for you and for me. (laughs) So here we go. Now on to the most famous part of the account. Now, I realized last week I was kind of mean to you, so I apologize. I had, I had read a verse and I said, guys, um, does it feel weird like hearing this out of Christmas season? And so, and to respect you all today, I decided to help you out a little bit as we read the story. <laughs> My friend David has uh, prepared some backdrops for me to go along with this for our passages, so we'll just pretend it's Christmas here for just a moment. Like that? I wanted you to feel a little bit more at home, even though it's only October and it's going to be like 90 today. We're reading the Christmas story, the most famous, famous birth story in all of human history, right? So I didn't want to put a Christmas tree up. I thought this would work just, just for just fine, okay? I'm going to read through this with you, but we're going to stop along the way and make a few comments as we go. And as we read, keep in mind Luke's purpose. Consider his sources Who did he talk to to get this information? And imagine, imagine being Luke, a believer in Jesus Christ, hearing this story unfold for the very first time. This wasn't part of the conversion when he accepted Jesus. If he indeed did learn from Paul and accepted Christ because of Paul's teachings, how often do you read Paul recalling the whole birth story as he presented the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not very often. He mentions a few parts, but not all of it. Much more important things for him to get to in the story. So here we go. The birth of Jesus, chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. When Luke writes this to the Gentiles of the Roman world at the the time he wrote this, they all would have been very familiar with such policies and procedures from their governing authorities in Rome. Augustus was one of the most famous Caesars of all. He was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Yes, the original Caesar, Julius. This is the one who followed him after uh, Julius's untimely exit from this planet. Thanks to Brutus, if you know the story, right? Some of us remember this from our high school English classes. Anyway, okay, you, you, you know some of these things. Even today, we can trace back these types of events to the Roman world. Now, scholars, are, they argue about the exact date of this. Somewhere between 2 and 4 BC would have been when this took place, this particular census, depending on who you look at. But there's no debate that they actually took place. Again, making the events of Jesus' birth very, very real to the persons that are reading this story back in the first century. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and the line 
of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in claws, and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room for them in the inn. Now, isn't it funny that we make this huge, giant production out of that last half of a sentence? <laughs> they couldn't stay in the hotel, but, and so we, <laughs> it's a big, huge, but that's all there is, is half a sentence about the whole thing, right? To those that might have heard this early account, and they're trying to be persuaded that Jesus is the Savior, the King, the Messiah, this story would have seemed very strange indeed. This type of birth doesn't make sense. If this child were to be God, if he were to be a great ruler, if he was to save his people, how could he have ever done it if he started like that? You see, so far in Luke's narrative, he really doesn't reveal much about Jesus's identity yet. Now, clearly he hasn't been born, so that's why. All we have is a very brief description from Gabriel, and we have Mary's song. That's it. Remember, Luke is a Gentile. He's writing to a Gentile audience. Look how common everything seems. There's no special privileges. There's no special finances. There's no special powers to make things happen in a better way for this couple and for the coming Messiah. It's a simple, humble arrival, one that would have identified with the majority of the people that were reading this account across the Roman Empire. And then what does Luke do? Well, he introduces even more plain, average, everyday folks. Verse 8, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. That's shocking. Angels showed up, and everybody's terrified. Who knew? Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born into you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He will, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And then suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And when the angels left them, they'd gone into heaven. The shepherds, the shepherds said to one another, hey, um, I think we should probably go check this out. Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has just told us about. Shepherds? Really? Luke, shepherds? That's who you introduce into the story are shepherds? This is who God reveals the news to? Not the kings, not the priests, not the wealthy, not the powerful, but common shepherds? Common day workers, if you will, that got stuck on the night shift? Yeah, that's who. We're so, those individual men were so overcome by what they saw, they dropped everything to go see what on earth this was about. Once again, reminding everyone that Jesus has come for everyone. So much so that the first people to hear the great news might be considered by some in that culture to be no one. That's who Jesus reaches out to. They hurried off. They found the Mary and Joseph. They found the baby who was lying in a manger just as they saw. And when they, or they'd been told, when they seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, there's just two things in those verses that I really want us to consider deeply. First, notice the shepherds' reaction to the scene. They show up, they see Mary and Joseph and the baby, and what do they do? The first reaction is to immediately go out and start telling others. Start spreading the word. They didn't have a second thought. They didn't consider the possible consequences. They didn't really seem to care about people's reaction to the news. They just kept telling people. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our example. It's perfect. If we know Jesus and we've accepted him, we should head out these doors and start sharing the good news of his birth his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and our salvation through him. He saved us. And that is our story to share with others. But here's something that a lot of Christians don't understand. Yes, he did, but he didn't just save you from. He just saved you for. It's a big difference. You're a new creation. He has good works prepared for you to do. He has saved you so that you might do these and reach others with his love through your life. And then Mary. Where did Luke get this insight? Who told him about Mary treasuring these stories from Jesus' life in her heart? I want to know. I really do. Mary, like any mom, held that child and dreamed dreams. She wondered exactly what he would become. How would God be able to fulfill all that he had told her through that precious little infant? And I'm sure every step of the way throughout his entire life, she continued to put each little moment, each little teaching, each little miracle, each little act of love in that treasure chest of her heart. The question for us is this, do we? Do we store up every encounter that we have with Jesus? Have we stored up every blessing that he has afforded us in our lives so far? Do we treasure the love that he has shown us in our lives, the lessons he has provided, the obstacles he has helped us overcome? Or do we just kind of disregard them and move on with life? Like, thanks, God. See you. Appreciate that. Or do we treasure them? (laughs) See, God gives us these things to share with others. How can we share them if we don't treasure them? if they're not important to us, if we don't keep them around to share why. What does God want from us? He wants us to share this because when we do, it brings glory and honor to him. That's what happens when we share our story. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and what he's done through us, which is just what happens in the closing text for today. Now, I love that these two individuals are in here because Luke's the only one that includes them. They're not really mentioned anywhere else in all of Scripture. They're very brief stories about two very awesome people, and I love that Luke thinks it's important enough to include them. It says in verse 21, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, they named him Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So they named him Jesus, and what's the next thing they do? They take him to church on day eight. They head to Jerusalem to go take care and fulfillment of the law, take him to the temple, On day eight, they take him to the church, to the synagogue, the temple, to be circumcised. Verse 22, when the time came for the purification rites, 
By the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit on that particular day, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what his custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord. As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Do you realize what the man is saying there? Do you really realize what he's saying to his God? For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, what? and a glory for your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, we don't know when this revelation was given to Simeon, but we can assume he's been waiting a few years at this point for the coming of the Messiah. And there's no doubt that the rumors of John the Baptist's birth had spread all over Israel. Zechariah was a priest for for crying out loud. Everybody would have heard about this at some point in time throughout the temple in the past three months plus. Now... (laughs) There have been some coming through talking about the birth of this kid named Jesus in a stable and how the angels had told him about it. Why wouldn't the uh, shepherds have stopped by the temple to share that news? That was the center of all the community. Why wouldn't they have stopped by and shared that good news with everyone else? Then out of nowhere, the Spirit moves this man to go to the temple on that day, and there he finds the Christ child. And the Spirit of God himself allows him to recognize Jesus immediately. And he recognizes him immediately with absolute, complete, and total certainty, so much so that he now believes he's ready to die. My life is over. Thank you, Jesus. It was awesome. It's all I wanted. You gave me. I'm good. Take me home. The end. Simeon had just met Jesus for the very first time in that moment. And instantly, what did he do? He fell in love. How much more should you and I be in love with Jesus? Knowing everything that we know about him, everything that he has done in our lives. Simeon recognized the fulfillment of the great prophecies and recognized Jesus as Savior. Not just before Jesus had saved anyone, before Jesus had taken a step Before Jesus had spoken a word, he recognized him as his Lord and Savior. What an example to those that first read this account. Those that might be having their first encounter with Jesus to see this elderly man immediately fall in love and give his life to this newborn baby who's done nothing yet. What an example for you and I today. Are we made even more certain of our faith through Luke's gospel. Simeon is just yet another example of what our faith could and probably should resemble. And then there's one last person. One last person. I told you we were text heavy today. I wasn't lying. A Jew. Simeon. Oh, wait. I I skipped ahead. Sorry. 
The one last thing from Simeon is that he really is the first one to truly expose this for what it is. Hey, by the way, this Jesus, the Savior, not just for y'all. He's a light to the Gentiles. What? He spoke that in the temple? What? Yeah. He's setting everybody up, letting them know what's to come. Jesus had to come to bring salvation to the beyond the Jews. The rest of the world was in on it now. But his prophecy continues, and then Simon goes on, and, or Simeon goes on and, and blesses Mary and Joseph and the baby. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken out against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Oh, and um, yeah, a sword will pierce your side, your soul, too. Now, what could that mean? He's holding your newborn baby, and he looks at you and says, yeah, destined for great things, but just so you know, there's going to be some pain for you too. What could that mean? What could that mean? In the same breath, Simeon prays the great things that are come and then shares the tragedy that awaits them as well. Mary, the new mother, is left to, she's got to just be wondering, uh, what's that mean? Jesus' whole ministry, as she saw events to begin to unfold, was she constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop? Did she feel the pain every time Jesus was rejected? Every time he was mocked? Every time people turned from him or just ignored or refused to accept his teachings? Did she feel that? Moms, you already know the answer. Because you saw that in your own kids. And you felt that pain yourself, haven't you? Ultimately, the greatest piercing would come as the ultimate sacrifice was given for her, for Mary, and then for you and I as well on the cross. Just like when the shepherds came, Mary had stored all these treasured in her heart as she waited for them to be fully revealed over the course of Jesus' life. Then we'll finish with the last person, Anna, mentioned in this text, this incredible prophetess that we know absolutely nothing about except the little details that Luke gives us, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, Luke says. He's just bold. She was a really old woman. She lived with her husband seven years is all, and remember, she got married probably as a teenager, so you can get an age range here. And then she's been a widow ever since. She's now 84 Details, very specific details. How did he know she was married for seven years? How did she know she was 84? She never left the temple but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child. Remember, she was a prophet. She knew immediately. And to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel, this woman had been a widow for maybe as long as 70 years. We don't know the exact time, but at least close She knew the pain, she knew the sorrow, but she didn't grow bitter. Instead, she devoted her life to the worship of her God. When Jesus came near, she knew. God chose to reveal to her who this child was and what his ultimate purpose when he has come to redeem Israel. And I love what Luke records. It says she gave thanks and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Can you see with me this woman? Could you imagine her being a greeter on Sunday mornings as people came in just jumping at him to share the excitement of the good news that the Redeemer is here? Every person that came to that temple until the moment God took her home, she was this spirit. 
as they came in, just excited, overjoyed, can't get enough. There were probably people that walked away from her. Uh, crazy old lady. <laughs> nah, she was full of the Spirit in every way. <laughs> every way. Man, it been awesome to go to her church, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's been awesome to meet her. And you know, we can be that to people as they come in, sharing the good news with people. Redemption is here now. What Israel had been waiting for forever was here. At that point, she got to experience it and share it with others and then finish. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now remember, Luke was a Gentile. He's presenting Jesus to to everyone, reminding them that Jesus came from everyone as the story unfolds. You'll continue to see that theme throughout. And even though he was a Jew, everything from his family tree to those that he taught to those that he healed, they demonstrated that the love, the mercy, the forgiveness, the hope, the grace, the salvation is for anyone who chooses to believe. And that'll become more and more obvious as we continue on this journey. Simeon and Anna, they they reveal to us this excitement, this excitement that we should share as believers in the good news of Jesus. That excitement hasn't diminished any in 2,000 years because it still sets up an eternity, which is 2,000 years is nothing in light of eternity for us to share this good news with anyone who will listen today. And if you've not met him yet, if you've not accepted him yet, if you're kind of like some of those first people that would have read or heard this good news and something about the Spirit is moving you today to a point where, you know what, I don't know if I've ever believed this stuff, but there's something about this Luke guy and the way he's presenting it that seems to be a lot more convincing than maybe some of the other things I've heard or maybe this is the first time I've ever heard it. Then today is today to make that decision. People, there's no reason to wait. There's no reason to wait. We're on, we're on planet Earth, and we're like, you know, we'll do that tomorrow. Well, you know what? I hate to tell you this, but there may not be a tomorrow. That is the reality for all of us, and we know that. But there is a today, and there is this moment, and there is this Jesus who came for you. And he came for me, and he gave his life so that we could live. And here in just a second, together, we're going to remember that sacrifice. And so if you grab one of these on the way in, if you're uh, new to, to this church or this congregation, like, why do they, what is this, and why do we do this every week? Well, our, our brotherhood, if you will, one of their foundational principles was, hey, um, we believe that, as Scripture says, every time we gather, we should break bread and remember. And so we've just established this as, as part of what we do. It's not a ritual. It's not a routine. No, 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 no. It's meaningful. It's important. He asked us himself, Jesus asked us to remember Every time we gathered, and so here we are gathered, and we get a chance to remember. And so to go from that birth story and that prophet and prophetess that looked at that Savior child, and, and we don't know, we don't know what Simeon was able to foresee through that prophecy. We, we don't know what God revealed in his mind as to how this would happen. But he knew that Mary's soul would be pierced as a result of what Jesus would ultimately do for her. And for all of us. And we take time to remember that. And so, if you will, we'll take this together and then I'll pray. I've got the bread, broken body of Jesus. We take time to remember the blood that was shed for us to cover our sins, to purify 
our souls to redeem us before our Creator. Fathers, we come before you today and we remember this sacrifice. It, it always seems so strange to, to remember it at the same time that we remember his coming, but it, it's all part of the same picture. It's all part of the same story, the same event that happened. What's hard to do is to make that event personal and to realize that all of these things, this, this study that we're doing was done for us. It was done with us in mind. Father, you know each and every one of our hearts. You know each and every one of us intimately. You created us. You know where we've fallen. You know where we've been successful. You know what you have in store for us, the plans you have in store for us, the good deeds you have available to us. And you know who's struggling right now. You know who's struggling on that walk, on that path. You know who's going through some pain. You know who's wrestling with the truth. Do I believe this or not? You know, there's no doubt, there's no question, there's no sin that you cannot overcome. I pray that in these next few moments, those that are impacted by your words will come forward. Whether to accept you for the first time or to truly take to heart this sacrifice that we just remembered. And offer their lives once again to you. Father, we love you.